Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I am so glad to be hanging out with you guys today from my house. I've got my family joining me this morning, at least for the first part here, because it has everything to do with what I'm going to share today. We are excited to have this opportunity to share with you. I love, love, love that we have got this thing called technology where even though we are socially distanced right now, we can still experience life and ministry together through virtual ministry, which is fantastic. I wanted to tell you that today is week five in a six-week series that we've entitled Keep Going. It's a message in response to being overwhelmed in life and specifically how we have been dealing with these feelings of being overwhelmed with the the COVID-19 crisis. It's something that is not unique to us. It's something that we've been dealing with as individuals and as a body of believers for centuries. And it's something that we still deal with today. What I love is that God makes abundantly clear how we are called as individuals who follow Jesus to respond in these moments of crisis, how we can keep going when life seems absolutely overwhelming. And speaking of keep going, this last week I was hanging out with Stacy and my family. We were actually en route to the church to show them some of the facelift and all that's going on out there, which is absolutely unbelievable. So exciting. And as we were going, we were reflecting on my upbringing and on Stacy's upbringing. We were talking about kind of just what it was like as kids. And Stacy asked me a question that she had never asked me before. She asked, she said, in everything that you went through in your childhood, was there anybody that you can think of that played a significant part in your persevering, in your ability to keep going? And I really appreciated her asking that question because it gave me the opportunity to reflect on names that I hadn't thought of in two decades. Names like Tom Worley, my middle school counselor, and Tammy Tack, my elementary school counselor at Creston Elementary, and Steve Zink, the very first youth pastor that ever poured into my life, and Dave Llewellyn, my eighth grade homeroom teacher who got me into wrestling and kept me out of a lot of trouble. These are individuals that, in the midst of life's toughest circumstances that I was facing, and seemingly all the time, they were there as encouragement. They were there as a positive voice, as, a, as an affirmation. They were there to walk with me through the ups and the downs of life and to spur me on to keep going when things that were beyond my control that felt so overwhelming were, were taking a hold of me. They were there to, to walk alongside me and to, to encourage me and to really spark a fire in me to do the same in others, which is in large part my salvation story. I remember giving my life to Jesus and it was on the heels of remembering all that I had gone through as a kid. And Pastor Scott from Westland Baptist Church at the time asked me, he said, Andy, what is it you really want to know? And by the way, he and my mom and my siblings are the only ones who can get away with calling me Andy. So don't get any ideas. But he said, hey, Andy, what is it that you really want to know? After me asking all these questions and I said, Scott, if God is real, why did all these things happen to me? And I'll never forget the very first verse I committed to memory. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because suffering develops perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our heart by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. And he said right then and there, he said, Andy, if you would surrender your life to Jesus, he will use your story to make history for somebody else's eternity. And I think about people like Pastor Scott Reevely and Steve Zink, and Dave Llewellyn, and Tammy Tack, and Tom Worley, and these individuals who have poured into my life, who have, who have been instrumental in, in me being able to keep going when life was, was seemingly insurmountable as a child. And even today, how God has blessed me with amazing friends and a, a second-to-none family. 
I am who I am today because of my wife Stacy and, and our family. I get to do what I get to do in life and ministry because of them. And we've dealt with a lot as a family. We've had to overcome a lot of things in, in our lifetime together. Not too dissimilar to you, I'm, I'm certain of it. But what I know like I know like I know is that God has commissioned us and he's called us to life and ministry together. And when Stacy asked me what it is that drives me to keep going or who it is that drives me to keep going, short of the Holy Spirit, his power and his presence in my life, I don't have to look very far as I look around and say, it's, it's you and it's you and you. It's all of you and it's my, my friends, many of you watching right now. It's because of your investment in my life. It's because your encouragement in my life and, and in our ministry that I'm able to keep going when, when life starts to, to mount and, uh, and, and build up and seemingly becomes overwhelming. So today, we're gonna spend some time talking about that, about how in an effort to keep going, in order to keep going, God gives us one another. Let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this series. I thank you for this season of life and ministry. God, there are so many friends and family watching right now that are overwhelmed, overwhelmed with life's circumstances or overwhelmed with this social distancing, ready to, ready to move on. God, we want to we wanna, we wanna fully surrender to you. And I just pray that in the midst of all that's going on that's overwhelming, that you would give us a supernatural peace. God, I pray that you would help us to see that there's tremendous value in one another and help us to to really lean into each other in life and ministry. And I pray now as we jump into a time in the word that you would open our hearts and ready our minds to encounter you and that as we encounter you, our life would be changed forever. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift to you alone, Lord, because you are the only one worthy of our praise. Amen. Hey, as you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians, we're gonna be in Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm gonna go ahead and let my family check out, hang out. You don't get to check out, but you guys do. Thanks, guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. All right, so with your Bibles open, we're going to spend our entire time today in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I want to give us a little bit of culture and context because it's really going to help set the stage for where we're going to be at today. The Apostle Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. He's hanging out with his friend Timothy, who's a mentee in the faith, and collectively together, they are reminiscing and working collaboratively to write this brilliant letter to their friends and fellow followers of Jesus that are in the community of Philippi. Paul is in shackles, if you remember from last week. He's literally chained to a Roman guard where every six hours they're bringing in a new, a new guard. And Paul is relying on people to come to him and his friends like Timothy and others to take the word out to those in surrounding communities that he, he can't get to, that he is limited by his imprisonment. In the midst of sitting in prison in Rome, he writes what I would argue is the most brilliant explanation and challenge for joy that has ever been penned. Here's a guy who's lost all of his freedoms. Here's a guy who has lost his ability to come and go. Here's a guy who is on trial for things that he didn't do. He's guilty of believing in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, the promise fulfilled, the, the promise delivered. And because of his bold proclamation, he is at odds with the people that he once was a part of. So now here he is in the midst of all this tragedy and all these things that are overwhelming. And he's facing this adversity 
And in all of it, he keeps going. And he pins this letter to a group of followers of Jesus who they themselves are dealing with persecution. They're dealing with circumstances that likely seem insurmountable to them. Now, Paul knows this group of individuals really well. And we're going to get into that here in just a moment. He actually planted a church here nearly a decade prior to what we're going to read. And it began with a host of of women outside of the city. There weren't enough God-fearing Jews to to create enough body of believers to form a synagogue. And so he goes to the outskirts and he preaches the gospel to these women. And these women catch fire and their faith is, is what drives and motivates. And their families begin to get saved. And Paul spends significant time with these individuals, growing with them and loving with them and raising them up and mutually supporting and encouraging one another. So he's constantly thinking about them. And he wants to encourage them in the midst of his obstacles. He wants to encourage them in their obstacles as well. We're going to pick up in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, which is a a super common introduction and explanation. It says, This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now remember last week, I talked about doulos. The doulos literally means to be a bond servant. What this is, is the Apostle Paul, he's in chains, but he doesn't, he doesn't celebrate that he's in chains because of man. Instead, he looks at his circumstances and he says, I choose to be in chains as a doulos, as a bondservant for the gospel. I choose to be in chains for, for you. I choose to be in chains for individuals who are far from Jesus and who need to hear the truth. And so he identifies who he's writing this letter and, and what, he, what he is. Essentially, he's a slave of, of Christ Jesus. He's not a, a slave to the governor. He's not a slave to the king. He's not a, a slave to Caesar. He is a slave to Christ Jesus and by choice. And he goes on to say, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus. Now he's looking for common ground. There's a parallel here, including the church leaders and the deacons. Some of your translations might even say to the saints. What he's doing here is he's referring to individuals who are followers of Jesus that share a mutual mission. Now hold on to that because we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Mutual mission. But he's writing to these individuals who are followers of Jesus, including the leaders of the the local church. Individuals who are responsible for caring for the orphans and the widows and disseminating the gospel and preaching and teaching. And he's writing this tremendous letter of affection and encouragement to everyone. It's, a, it's an inclusive letter, and he wants this to be read aloud very publicly and then disseminated to other followers of Jesus in and around the community. You can imagine that when they get this letter, this would have been overwhelming for them. They would have been excited to hear from Paul and jumped into this, and as they, as they dive in, there's some, there's some credibility immediately given because Paul says who he is and what he is, a slave of Jesus, and who he's writing to. In verse 2, he's going to begin with an invocation of blessing and prayer, which is super typical of a Pauline epistle. Check this out. He says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you two things, grace and peace. So if this is what Paul is praying, if this is what God, God is, is, is going to be giving the people that he's asking God to give them, which is this grace and peace, we would do well to ask the question, well, what is grace and peace? First of all, I want you to know that grace always precedes peace in the Bible. And I'll explain why in a second. Grace, charis, is God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, it's something that we're unworthy of, that we're undeserving of, that we do nothing for. That we are dead as sinners in our transgressions. But because of God's grace, 
We're found, we're saved, we're redeemed, we're restored. So he wants each and every one of them to know the fullness of God's riches at Christ's expense or the grace that comes from God. When you have this grace, it leads to this supernatural peace. Now the word peace, irene, in the Bible, it means a whole or a collective and it should it should help conjure up in our minds this picture of something that is complete. It is entire. It's not missing anything. Now, a lot of times people really try to put peace in front of grace. And they search the world over looking for peace while forfeiting grace. But you can't have peace without grace. You certainly can't have the peace that surpasses all understanding, which Philippians 4, 8 talks about, without the grace that comes from God. And I will tell you this. Remember, Paul, author, sitting in prison in Rome, bound, shackled, chained to a Roman guard. All of his freedoms have been stripped away from him. And yet, in the midst of this, he's writing about what? Peace. It's not a circumstantial peace. It's a complete peace. It's a whole peace. It's an entire peace. And it's only possible because he knows the grace of God. Friends, if you are not experiencing a complete or an entire or a whole peace, despite the circumstances that you and I are facing right now, the, the issue isn't the peace. It actually begins with the grace. And I would ask you to consider if you have really fully received and are walking in the grace of God. Are you walking in the fact that God gives you something that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve, that we can't earn or buy or barter for, we can't create on our own, that God gives us his riches at Christ's expense. And when we understand that he does something so radical for us by calling us and saving us and redeeming us, regenerating us and setting us apart, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us, then regardless of the circumstances, we can live with absolute peace because of God's grace. So that's how he sets the stage in this brilliant letter of encouragement that he writes the church in Philippi. Let's jump into verse three as we, as we keep going. Listen to this. Every time I think of you, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. That word thanks in the original language is where we get the same word Eucharist. Does that sound familiar to you? It probably does. The word Eucharist is where we get the word communion. It's where we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. And it's, a, it's an observation. It's a, it's a celebration of what Jesus did when he says that he took the common cup and the common bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he took the common cup and he gave it to his disciples and he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a celebration. It's a, it's a thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for the disciples, what Jesus has done for us. And the apostle Paul continues this tradition that he received from Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, for I receive, I pass on what I receive from Jesus that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the cup, and he gave it, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. That's literally the same word that we get here when he says, I give thanks to my God. He's remembering, and he's celebrating, he's commemorating. Every time he thinks about them, he's commemorating and he's celebrating God, and God, what God has done for them, what God has done for him, through the relationship that he shares with the people in Philippi. How amazing is that? That when we have relationships with one another, it's an act of common unity or communion. It's a celebration of the Eucharist, a commemoration. And man, I just love that Paul says, every time I think about you, it's a celebration for me. Verse four, he says, whenever I pray, 
Now, how often does Paul pray? That's a, that's a trick question because isn't he the same one who says, pray without ceasing? That we should pray continually without stopping? So now the fact that he says, whenever I pray, we know that Paul has a disciplined, a disciplined prayer life and that he's constantly in prayer. So the people hearing this, that are reading this letter, they are super aware of Paul's prayer habits and they're reading, whenever I pray, man, they just gotta be boiling over with joy knowing that he's praying about them all the time, praying for them all the time. He's, he's literally interceding on their behalf. And then he goes on to give them some specifics about how he prays. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. Man, he does some really cool things here. First of all, he says, whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you. Not some of you, not those of you who deserve it, not some of you who have done a little bit more than everybody else, but for every one of you in this community of Christ. I lift you up, I'm interceding on your behalf, and I'm doing it not out of obligation, but with joy in my heart. Hear that. Here's a guy who has every reason in the world to be miserable, to be angry, to feel cursed, and to be cursing, and yet he doesn't. This is a man who chooses joy, and he's able to choose joy because he knows peace at the expense of God's grace. And in the midst of that, what does he say? I make these requests with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. At the beginning, I told you that I was going to revisit this mutual mission. I don't want to talk about that right now. What Paul is talking about is people that he's experienced life and ministry with. An example is Lydia, who is a dealer in fine cloth, who is one of these women that has this tremendous encounter with Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And as a byproduct, she says, you've got to take this message to my family and many more like her. And Paul goes into this community of Philippi and begins to share the gospel in partnership with all of these that have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who have believed in their heart, who have confessed with their mouth, who are now being saved and who are being sanctified. As we work collectively on mission, it's a, a mutual mission. There's something to be said about having encountered and experienced like behaviors or like experiences. I find it funny whenever I walk into a, a grocery store or a, a convenience store or a retail store and I see a family that has a lot of kids. You can tell I, I like to walk around and look at how other people are looking and observing that large family like they're crazy. And then sure enough, we'll cross paths and we'll start exchanging stories about how many kids they have and how many kids we have. And we'll always share the jokes that we hear. Yeah, I heard the one about you guys need a hobby. You need a pastime. Must have been a long winter. You should get a TV in your room. You know how that happens, right? Are you half rabbit? Yeah, we've heard it all. And we sit there and we exchange these jokes and we can relate to one another in that moment because the family that I'm talking to, they also have a large family. And there's some there's some really unique things about being a part of a large family that unless you're a part of a large family, you may not understand. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about this mutual mission with people that understand what he's saying because they've shared in the gospel. They've shared physically in the gospel. They've shared intellectually in the gospel. They've shared spiritually in the gospel. They've shared financially in the gospel. They're working collectively to advance the kingdom by, by giving away the gospel with their lives and in their words and in their deeds and their actions. And so when Paul says, I, I praise God, I pray for you with great joy in my heart, with gladness, for you have been my partners 
this, this mutual mission in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. How amazing is that? Look at verse six. He says, and I'm certain, I'm so confident in what I'm about to share with you that, that I find a certainty in this. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This is one of the most prolific passages in the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul, in one sentence, addresses both salvation and sanctification. We're told that when we lift his name up, through presenting the good news, the gospel, which Paul is talking about here, that when we lift his name up, he, God, draws all people unto himself. But we're also promised that as he draws us unto himself and we experience this regeneration, that that's not the end, that's really the beginning. That's the journey starting. And there's this process of sanctification of becoming more and more like Christ. Paul says in the midst of all this, that he's certain that God, who began the good work within us, will continue his good work until it's finally finished or complete, which is known as, as the day that Christ returns, or glorification, when we are entire and complete and whole with our, with our new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. Friends, I want to encourage you right now. You can keep going because God isn't finished with you yet. God didn't meet you in the middle of your mess to leave you there. God didn't meet you in the middle of your brokenness and feeling overwhelmed to pull you out of it to move on without you. God is at work in you and around you and through you. It's up to us to, to, to join him on this mutual mission and to celebrate God's work in us and realize all the more what he's doing for us and through us as we, as we grow all the more in our knowledge. And how do you do that? Through the active living word of God and in our stature. And how do you do that? Through living out what you're learning. The Apostle Paul is super confident in this. I'm confident that God who began this work in you is going to continue this work in you until Jesus comes again. You should take heart in that. Take comfort in that. Take joy in that. Get excited about that, that God isn't finished with you yet. As long as there is still breath in your lungs, regardless of your circumstances, God isn't through with you. Don't give up. Keep going. God is working. He's at work in you. Verse 7. Because of these things, Paul now transitions and he says, So it's right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Man, if you remember when I started just a few minutes ago with my family, I was talking about how my wife Stacy asked me how I was able to keep going at times that were seemingly insurmountable odds in my life. And if there was anybody who had done something or said something specific that had lasting impact, and I got to really think on that and celebrate that. And I still do. I praise God for, for the Toms and the Tammies and the Steves and the Scotts and the Daves that he placed in my life. I, I praise God for many of you that he's still placing in my life today. 
And the Apostle Paul, I can understand this sentiment when he says, I, I have a right to feel this joy because of this partnership that we share together. You have a special place in, in my heart. Paul was actually put in prison in Philippi early on, 10 years ago, because he was preaching the gospel and Satan tried to use a, a girl, a slave girl, to do his evil bidding. And she actually went out while Paul and Silas were doing their ministry and she started screaming out loud, these men are, these men are here with the gospel. They're here to talk about Jesus. They're here to proclaim the, the good news. And what she was saying was absolutely true, but how she was going about it was absolutely distracting and confusing. And Paul looked right at her and he cast that demon right out of her. And because of that, her owners were overcome with anger because of her divination, her ability to allow the, the evil spirits to work in them. She was essentially a fortune teller, diviner. And she no longer had that ability because the demon that was in her doing that had been cast out from her. And these individuals, these owners of this girl were infuriated and they took Paul and Silas and they put them on trial and there they were beaten and they were arrested and they were put in, in prison and crazy things happened. There, there's a, there's a, such a super cool story in the book of Acts. I'd encourage you to go read it about an earthquake and the, the prison gate opening up and Paul able to be freed but but singing this celebration hymn in the midst of all this, this craziness and this jailer about to kill himself but Paul's stopping it and then he leads this guy to Christ and the guy says, hey, come to my family and he leads them to Christ and they all get baptized in that moment and it's just tremendous what happens. These people, the people that Paul's talking to, are the individuals that were on mutual mission with Paul when that happened. They're the people that were spurring him on toward good, that were cheering him on, that were thankful for his ministry, that were grateful for his mission. And so the Apostle Paul wants them to know, this is a tremendous and a very strong word of encouragement. He wants them to know that they hold a, a really special place in his heart because of who they are and what they've been through together. And I would ask you to give consideration right now who are the men and women that God has placed in your life that have been the greatest source of encouragement for you? Who spurs you on toward good? Who encourages you to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep persevering, to keep pressing on? Who are the men and women that God has put into your life for, for that special season where it seems like you can't keep going, but they, they seemingly come along and they walk hand in hand, lockstep with you through the difficulties? And the second question is like that. Who are you, that person too? Who are you encouraging? Who are you loving? Who are you doing life and ministry with? Who are you sharing words of encouragement and joy? Who are you interceding on behalf of and praying for? Who are you grateful for? And you're letting them know how grateful you are for them in your life. We each need one another. We're called to life and ministry together from the very beginning of creation. That's how God created us, that we would experience life and ministry together. In verse 8, Paul talks about how God, who knows the inner recesses of our heart, can verify his absolute love and commitment to these people. Look at verse 8. God knows how much I love you and long for you with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Can I, can I say something pretty crazy right now? Am I the only one who likes to feel wanted? Am I the only one who really likes to know that he's valued? That he brings value to life and to others' lives? I mean, I, I am, I am hyper people-driven. 
I am super aware that I love to please people. And that can actually be a tool of the devil, of the enemy, to distract me and take me off course. But more than that, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God that he's given me this this intrinsic, this deep interpassion to love people and want to meet them where they're at and do life and ministry with them. God knows my heart. He knows within the deep recesses of my heart how much I love Blair, how much I love Country Bible Church. And if I'm being honest, it hasn't always been easy. It hasn't always been easy. I haven't always wanted to keep going. There have been times and seasons of life and ministry over the last four years where it's been overwhelming. But because of the people that God has placed in my life and around my life and my family's life and my family, that we've been able to keep going and to learn to love all the more this community that God has blessed us with. And so it's with a glad and sincere heart that I can say, I love Washington County. I love Blair, Nebraska. I love Country Bible Church. I love Iowa. I love that God has given us a platform where two states and eight counties and over 20 cities can come collectively together as one body of believers to celebrate as followers of Jesus, to gather together, to grow together, to give together, and to go together. God knows how much I love you. God knows how much I love this community. And it's important for me that you know how much I love you. The Apostle Paul found it imperative that the people in Philippi knew just how much he loved them. Verse 9, he says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. That's such a cool picture. In order to overflow, it means that there had to have been a flow. The Apostle Paul, who's sitting in prison, has likely heard from others about the love that the Philippian people are giving to others. And he wants to encourage them in loving. He wants to encourage them in their mutual mission. He says, I want you to keep doing it. Great job. Keep going. Keep loving so much so that you overflow, that you spill over from all sides. Just tonight, I was opening a bottle of kombucha. Some of you are going to have to stop right now, and you're going to have to research what that is. And after you research what that is, you're going to think I'm a little weird. Others, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about, and you're going to say, yes, I can totally see he's from Oregon. Some of you will get that later. Kombucha is um, it's a probiotic drink. It tastes like flavored vinegar, and I love it. My family hates it, except my five-year-old daughter, Brienne. That kid, well, she loves it. And so tonight, she brought over this bottle of kombucha. And she said, Dad, can I have some? She calls it capucha. She says, Dad, can I have some capucha? And I said, yes, Brianne. Well, she gave it to me and I didn't bother checking how she had run it up to me. So I opened up this bottle and the carbonation formed at the top and started spilling out everywhere. And it was a great opportunity for me to teach my daughter about carbonation and shaking drinks before you open them. What if our lives were like that? What if we were so bottled up with love and joy and this peace that surpasses understanding and this desire to do ministry that we've been shaken up and, 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 and we're just waiting for the opportunity for that, that, that lid to be popped so that we can overflow all over others. And I just love that word picture. He said, I want you to overflow all the more, more and more, and that you will keep on growing. There it is. Keep going. Keep going. Keep on growing in knowledge and understanding, or in the original language, that word literally means discernment. I want to read that again because this is super critical. This is Paul's prayer for his people, for the people he loves that he's on mutual mission with. There's three things. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. 
that you will keep loving like you have and that you'll do it even more. I pray that you will keep growing. In other words, keep on going. Grow in knowledge, grow in stature, keep going. And I pray that you will grow in understanding, in discernment. This goes back to what James said at the very beginning of this series, that if you lack wisdom, ask God. He's going to give it generously. Ask for wisdom. Guys, what if we made this our prayer? That we would be an outpouring of love to those around us and that we would keep growing in knowledge and stature, that we would keep going and that we would exercise wisdom and discernment in how we love and live. It would change the face of our community. It would change the tide of our culture and nothing, absolutely nothing would ever be the same again. And can I be honest? That's been my prayer. That's been the prayer of our staff. That's been the prayer of our elders. That in light of everything we've been going through, that when we come back together as a church, that we will not be the same. That we won't just gather together in bricks and mortar and go about doing what we've always done, but that we would capitalize on every opportunity that we've been given and will be given to be the church. I pray that the 12,744 lunches that we gave out over the last nine weeks would just be the catalyst for the life change that is to come. I pray all the more that we would never be the same again as we continue to overflow with love and grow in knowledge and stature and discern God's will and direction for our church. May that be true of our lives. Look at verse 10. For I want you to understand what really matters. Can I encourage you to circle that? Like, really circle that. If you haven't got your Bible yet, go ahead, go get it, and circle that, because this is super critical. He said, I want to to encourage you to understand what really matters. Why would he say that? Well, it would have to begin with understanding what's going on in Philippi at this time. There's a ton of turmoil. There's a lot of persecution. Things that are overwhelming in Philippi. And these people are likely being distracted by circumstances and by their surroundings. How many of you can identify that you can lose sight of what matters most when your circumstances and surroundings are overwhelming? But I love that the Apostle Paul basically says, lean in. I really want you to catch this. I want you to get this. Pay attention to what matters most. Your circumstances may not change. Your surroundings may not change. But what you focus on is up to you. I want you to, I want you to understand what really matters most so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. That goes back to what I talked about in last week's message, if, if you remember. And if you don't, I would encourage you to go back and watch that. We talked about how Paul was able to keep going because he understood his call. He knew what he was committed to. He was committed to his call. And that included at least three things that embody our call as Christians. That we are called to love God with every fiber of our being and love our neighbor as ourself in Matthew 22. That we are called to live set apart, sanctified, different from the rest of the world, to be in the world, not of the world, First Peter. And that we are called to labor or be co-laborers in Christ, First Corinthians. And here Paul is reminding the church in Philippi that he wants them to live this blameless life set apart, preparing for Christ's return. Not waiting, not, not in, in, in this passive lifestyle where we're going through the motions, but actively living, waiting for Christ's return. Verse 11, as we wrap up here, he, he's going to transition with another invocation or benediction. It's a prayer and it's a challenge. 
may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. Do you know the, the nine components or characteristics of fruit? From Galatians, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit allows us to know that there's life and there's a, a life source. And when you bear fruit, you're bearing up something that is useful and beneficial to others. They can eat from it. They can get sustenance and nutrition from it. And the Apostle Paul is very aware that when he's on mutual mission and we're growing all the more in our knowledge and stature and when we're loving all the more to the point where we're overflowing and we're continuing to go despite the circumstances and we're focused, he encourages us to be filled with the fruit of salvation. What's the fruit of your salvation? Guys, it is literally, it is, it is this unbelievable joy. It's a constant reminder that we were dead, we are now alive. Why is it that we know that intellectually, but we don't always live it physically? I mean, the Apostle Paul says, what do life and death have in common? How is it possible to be filled with the life of Jesus, yet go through the motions and act like we're the living dead? Some of us are walking around like zombies right now because we're, 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 just, we're so hyper-focused on the wrong things. We're overwhelmed and we're scared and we're depressed and we're angry and we're walking around like zombies. We're walking around like the living dead. And the Apostle Paul says, look, let your salvation be what feeds your fruit and your joy because it's what matters most. It's what matters more than anything else. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. Now, that's the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you'll do nothing. Here again, the Apostle Paul is giving credit where credit is due, that it is in Christ and him alone that we draw our sustenance, our, our source of life and living and godliness. And as we are on mutual mission with Jesus... We grow all the more. And, and there's fruit that is evidenced in our lives in that growth. And here it is, the final part of verse 11 and where we're going to finish today. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Glory and praise is a, it's a big celebration. Think about the biggest party you've ever heard of. It's bigger than that. Think about the biggest happening or, or to-do that you've ever been a part of or seen on television. It's bigger than that. It is a joy that is so overwhelming that others around us are impacted by our celebration of the things that God has done in our lives. When we look at this series, Keep Going, and how we're able to keep going in the midst of life's circumstances. I'm reminded that annually, if you look at some of the best-selling books the world over, year after year after year, those books are self-help books, they're leadership books, they're business and strategy books, systems, there's stories, biographies, and autobiographies of people overcoming the odds. And they're bestsellers for a reason. If you were to ask yourself and give honest evaluation to why those types of books, those 
leadership books, those strategy books, those biographies and autobiographies of people overcoming these insurmountable odds in life, why those are best-selling books, it's because all of us, every one of us knows what it is like to be overwhelmed and we want to know what it takes to overcome. Friends, I want to give you just a little bit more. As each one of us is desperately searching for what it takes to overcome, to keep going when life is overwhelming, it begins and ends with the grace and peace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense, which creates a, a perfect peace in us that surpasses all understanding. But a part of what we are given by God is this amazing ability and opportunity for life and ministry together. The same author, Paul, who is writing to this church in Philippi, will write to a church in Rome, and he'll say, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. One of the greatest gifts that God gives us in our ability to keep going when we're up against the wall, when life is overwhelming, is one another. He gives you me, and he gives me you. We all have another that we're called to, and that's been called to us. And so my challenge, my encouragement, is that you would do two things. First, spend some time reflecting on who God has gifted you with, that has helped you to overcome, that has helped you to keep going when life was coming down all around you. And write them a letter of encouragement this week, just like the Apostle Paul did here to the church in Philippi. Physically write them a letter of encouragement, letting them know how much you appreciate them, how much the mutual mission that they've had in your life with you has meant to you. And thank them for their investment in your life. That'll go a very long way. And it honors God and it honors others. And the second thing I want to leave you with is to ask yourself to consider who you are the one another to. Who are you encouraging? Who are you speaking life to? Who are you discipling? Who are you coming alongside? Who are you walking hand in hand lockstep through the the circumstances of life that are overwhelming? Who are you in the trenches with? Who are you surrounding so that they know that they're not alone? Every one of us has got something to offer, and that's God. That's our salvation story. That's something that we all have this mutual mission for. And that doesn't require a ton of resources. That requires obedience to do what Jesus has called us to do, to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That requires us to go. And I know that there are some people that that can be super uncomfortable for. But I can't encourage you enough to go to find somebody to love, find somebody to encourage, find somebody to inspire, find somebody to come alongside, find somebody to pour into. As we wrap up, I want to encourage you that we're going to wrap up this series next week. And we're going to share a message that I've entitled Celebrate. And I've got some some special friends that are going to be joining me for the message. I cannot wait for you to hear other stories of people who have poured their lives into others and whose lives have been poured into and how God has used one another 
to advance his cause and his kingdom and inspire others around to keep going. I can't encourage you enough to come back and watch next week as we celebrate together who God is and all that he's done and all that he will do as collectively together we keep going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to spend this time in your word. I thank you for my friends, for my family, for those who you have blessed me with. I thank you right now for the, the administrators and the teachers and the counselors and the coaches, and the pastors, and the civic leaders and the volunteers that you've appointed for our community and around us. I thank you for their investment in our lives. God, I thank you for the people who selflessly give of themselves time and time again on mutual mission to encourage and inspire and to give selflessly to help us be the best that we can be as we move forward in you through your grace that we might know full peace. And I pray that we too would be that representation, that we would be individuals who would selflessly and obediently and intentionally seek to serve others, seek to love others, seek to give ourselves away in encouragement and in love as an act of our salvation, the fruit of our salvation. And I pray all this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.